All right, okay. Hugo Bound Anderson here, your friendly neighborhood podcast host. Today, it is with great pleasure that I'm speaking with Jacqueline Nolis, Chief Product Officer at Saturn Cloud, where they're working on building collaborative data science cloud environments. Jacqueline is not only one of the sharpest humans working in the space, but she is a bloody hoot, as we say here in Australia. Note that when we recorded, Jacqueline was head of data science at Saturn. So many congrats on the new job, Jacqueline, you legend. In this conversation, Jacqueline and I talk about her journey in moving from mainly working in prescriptive analytics, building reports in PDFs and PowerPoint presentations to deploying machine learning products to production. We riff on all types of failure modes in data science, machine learning, and AI, and delve into bullshit jobs in data science. Yes, that's a technical term, as you'll find out. We discuss the elements that are bullshit, the elements that aren't, and how to increase the ratio of the latter to the former. We discuss her motion from doing data science to designing products for data scientists and how to think about choosing career paths. Jacqueline has been an individual contributor, a team lead, and a principal data scientist, so has a lot of valuable experience here. We talk about her experience of transitioning gender while working in data science, and we really do work hard to find a bright vision for the future of this industry. I feel like this conversation is particularly wild, as it was Really late at night for Jacqueline when we recorded, and also I had a fever. So grab yourself a drink, buckle up, and get ready to rock and roll, because we're about to enter the world of bullshit jobs in data science and what to do about them. Welcome to Vanishing Gradients. Hey there, Jacqueline. Hello. How's it going? Welcome to the show. I'm great. How are you? Good. Exciting to be on your new exciting show. This is good. <laughs> I'm so excited. And you and I, you know, we've been chatting for years, but we haven't released a podcast episode in several years together. That's and right. And a lot has happened since we last spoke publicly. That's right. We're like, it feels like we're bringing back the band. I mean, you're bringing back the band. I'm just a guest in your band, but I'm very excited to be a part of your band. Yes. <laughs> I appreciate that. But a lot has happened in, in your career as well. And I'm real. So one of the things we talked about last time is the importance of PowerPoint presentations yeah. in data science. Since we had that conversation, you've been doing a lot of machine learning work in, in production. I think that'll be a great conversation. The other yes. thing that's I'd love to talk about at some point is that you've transitioned mid-career. And I think that'll be very interesting for our audience as yes. well. Yes, transition gender, not just industry. Transition and stuff, gender. gender, yes. yes. Everything is changing for... For me these days. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. also in your current job at, at, at Saturn, you're designing products for data science scientists instead of being the customer. So, you know, hitting all these points, I think will be very interesting. Well, I'll find very interesting and hopefully our listeners will as well. But before we get to all of that, I think setting the scene with a bit of context around your career, how you started working in data and how that led you to where you are today could be interesting. Yes, okay, I will go through that. So, hi listeners, I'm Jacqueline Nolis. I started my career 10, 15 years ago, I got an undergrad and master's in math. And then I'm like, I want to go do math for businesses. And now that's called data science. But back in the day, it didn't really have a name, maybe business analytics or something. 
But I did that for a while. Or I work on Wall Street. Oh my God, I didn't want to do that though. Because I'm like, but I want to do yeah, something real. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, when yeah. I finished grad school, actually, just before I finished grad school, everyone who was going into industry was going into finance. And I was like, far out. I don't want to, I don't want to do that. And then so I went down the academic track and then data science or something became a thing. I was like, oh, I can use these skills elsewhere. Yes, I will say in like 2010-ish, that time period, at one point I was interviewing for a job and the interviewer straight up was like, why don't you go work on finance and make more money? And I'm like, I, I don't like, I don't want to work in finance. I want to work at a company that builds stuff instead. And like, I don't know, I got suspicious eyes. Like, so I don't think data science is really a thing people understood or knew about back then. Yeah, and I did go to some recruitment drinks at several financial institutions, which were truly, like, I, I definitely did not belong in those places. And that's not to disparage anyone who does belong there as well, but it wasn't for me. Diverging from the story for a second, also in 2009 when I was interviewing, that was a common thing, where as part of the interview process, they would take you out for drinks. And in 2021, that is mind-boggling. Like, that is such Absolutely. a deeply concerning thing that, like, the company wants to get you drunk as part of the recruiting process. And But I was straight out of school and didn't know any better and was like, okay, I guess that's just how the business world works. But that is not how it works for me anymore. So mathematics and industry, business decisions, yeah. BI, yeah. data my yeah, big I did data, that. whatever, yeah. predictive, and a whatever. So what, what yeah. happened then? I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> well, because like, I was straight out of math and, you know, straight out of a math program. You want to prove theorems and develop new methodology and all that. And like, my jobs like started with like, using Excel to take SAS data and make it into a PowerPoint where like, you're just hitting run on the same report someone else made once a month. Like, it just, it didn't feel technical. It felt very much like, just kind of like, wrote work kind of a thing. So then mm -hmm. I went and got a PhD, which was a good stalling tactic. And it gave me a little more time to decide what I want and do some acting. Realized I didn't want to go into academia and be a professor. What was the PhD in? Oh, industrial engineering. But it was really right. like operations research. So like, how do you, I, the, my PhD was in like, how do you decide where Tesla should put charging stations and mm. like route cars to the right charging station. So it was very much like a math problem, but just an applied math problem. Yeah. But then, so I, I did that. And then during my PhD, I started doing consulting on the side for a tiny consulting firm. And then I liked that. And so I finished my PhD and I went into consulting and I did consulting, became a director of cons a consulting firm. And then, and then I switched to working on my own as a consultant. Then I was on your podcast, which is a big milestone in my career, but it was exciting. And actually it's funny because because I was consulting, very much my career was working with companies, taking ideas, doing data science to make PowerPoints and helping the companies understand, like, use data, understand and make business decisions. And then I was on your podcast. And like a month later, my career at that point then switched to actually just building machine learning models, which is like totally different. Well, not totally different. It's somewhat different where the idea of what I was making went from power or PowerPoints and ideas to help business people make decisions to actually models that would get deployed into production, which I had a lot of fun with. I liked it. My skills of making PowerPoints and convincing people of things was very useful because it, I could help convince people that my machine learning methods were good. But I did that for a few years as a freelance consultant. And then COVID hit and I'm like, I don't want to consult anymore. This is really risky and stressful. Uh, and I went back to industry. And you know, today I'm now a head of data science at Saturn Cloud, which is a company that makes products for data scientists. And I help design the data science product and help like use data science on the platform to help you know make it better and stuff too and lead the team that does that. And it's a lot of fun. I've enjoyed my journey, I would say. 
Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating journey. There are so many points in there which I kind of want to zoom into. I mean, from developing insights and helping people, decision makers make decisions under uncertainty using dashboards and, and slides is incredibly important to deploying products and machine learning models to production, all the way through to building products for data scientists to use. Before we get into those things, I I got to tell you, on and off, I used to be very bullish on data science and every now and then I, I get relatively disillusioned. So I'd love you to inspire me and just tell me why you think what we're doing is even important at all. Why is data science important? I struggled with this a lot too. And I think that's probably like anytime you're in a field for long enough, you start to get jaded about it of like, hey, mm. sometimes what we do isn't as useful as we think it is and things like that. I think there is a net good of putting effort into understanding how things work. And I think at its core, data science is using one way, data, to try and get just a better understanding of how the world works. And it's not going to be perfect. And it's not, sometimes data is going to mislead us and things like that. But like at its core, it is still better to try and do that than to just be like, we will never investigate how the world works. We are just going to, you know, play it fast and loose. Like, no, I think there is a net good in, you know, trying to do things a little better. And I do think data science has a lot of, ability to make things better sometimes makes things worse but also like you know there's i i, I think it is an endeavor worth trying so that is my I, optimistic I, I love that and i love actually we need optimism as a strategy particularly now getting given everything that's going on i do want to play devil's advocate and push back on that slightly by saying i think all the insights work helps us understand the world and make better decisions in the world, hopefully. I mean, we need methodologies around that as, as well and tying data to, to decisions in robust principled ways, which I don't think we we yet have across uh, across the board. When we're putting machine learning models in production, though, or doing massive online experiments, I suppose there is an argument that, let's go back to Chris Anderson's piece in Wired in 2008, which is called something like Big Data, Why the Data Deluge Makes the Scientific Method Obsolete. And part of the premise here is what we were seeing at the time is a lot of companies investing in big data and the idea that you may not even need to understand things as much anymore because you have enough data, right? And when we're putting things in production, we may not be understanding what we're doing and the impact we're having as well. So I think that's probably the contrarian aspect of this. But have you seen that played out and what business leaders actually want as well? I'm going to rephrase what you just said, which is... Um hey, data science may not be good because when people use data in machine learning models and things like that, because they say, hey, we don't even need to understand how it works so long as we can see like a percent improvement on our metric or whatever, it doesn't matter. Like, hey, actually that's sometimes bad because on the back end, that's actually secretly causing problems or people get addicted to your social platform in negative ways and develop eating disorders. Like, like there's so many net negative effects. There's so many potential net negative effects that saying, hey, just using data to do stuff is bad. Like it can yeah, be bad because you would miss that. Exactly. And because yeah. you miss the step of understanding is my point. That's why we're so interested in explainable and interpretable and causal ML these days, right? Because we're, there's something missing from the deployment story in terms of understanding the causation behind what we're doing. I agree. I will say I agree with that. But like that is a real problem. And I think you can point to like a bajillion articles throughout the news of like situation where someone made an ML model, didn't really think about how it might actually be implemented, like, like how it might actually be working if you like really dived into it. And then it turns out there was like a really negative effect that came from it of like, oh, by the way, your coupon algorithm doesn't give coupons to this like subset of people in a, you know, like 
really biased way or blah, blah, blah. Like there's just a lot of those. I think that is true. I think there are lots of other ways that data science can also be bad. And yes, I agree. Yes, I think that what you said is true. And not only that, other things are also bad too. <laughs> and, and, and I'm also reflecting, you were the first person who came on my previous podcast and was like, whoa, 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 like we shouldn't be using data all the time. There are other ways to make decisions and data can, can make decisions kind of crappy in some places. Yes, and this is my soapbox that I think about standing on all the time when I lay up late at night thinking about data science. So I guess it's not really standing up on a soap But by the way, for people listening to this podcast, it is, I'm recording in Seattle, it is 9.30, which means I'm a little bit more passionate and loopy than I normally am on podcasts, so enjoy it. Uh, but anyway, so what I'm... <laughs> Jacqueline is one of the great, great versions of Jacqueline, <laughs> I, I feel. Yes. So when I'm slitting up, sitting late at night, staring at the wall, sitting on a soapbox, I think to myself, boy, people use data in a lot of ways that it actually, a lot of decision-making ways that are bad. Like, for instance, I will talk about some things that I have seen that are bad, which is companies, like say you wanted your company and you want to launch a loyalty program. So like, hey, if you buy 10 sweaters, your 11th one's free, sort of like that. There are companies where when designing this product, this loyalty program, they say, we will not launch it unless we have the data to prove that it's going to be a good positive return on investment. But there is no data that will tell you if a loyalty program that doesn't exist yet will work well or not, because that is not how data works. Data is historic. It doesn't tell you how a thing that doesn't exist yet will go. But because the company says, hey, we need to use data and make a model and decide how this works, people will just create a weird financial model that says whatever they want and justify whatever. And that can, the idea of using, like by trying to force data to help you make that decision, you're doing worse than just saying, hey, you know, the executive who is designing this ran three loyalty programs before this. So they probably have an idea of what works and not from like past experience. And that is just as value as it, valuable as an Excel file that has a, you know, financial model in it. I've seen that happen a lot in my career. Yeah. 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 And speaking of Excel, I wasn't actually intending on going going here now, but it looks like we're jumping jumping right in. So strap in for the ride, everybody. Speaking of Excel, I, I want to talk about several examples of uh, massive data science and uh, statistical communication fails in the past several years. The first one, or the one of the most prevalent, I think, is the COVID Excel cubic model, and I'll include a, a link in the show notes to that. But I, I presume most people will have seen the nightmare that that was. Whatever recently happened at Zillow, I honestly, I don't, I don't give a shit about getting into the details of what happened at Zillow. I think one thing that's clear is that, like, an executive team blaming an algorithm is ridiculous, and they clearly made poor decisions around incorporating machine learning into broader business and corporate risk assessment, essentially. Then going back to five years ago, five, six years ago, the inability of mainstream media to predict Trump's victory or communicate the uncertainty around the prediction, except perhaps for, for Nate Silver. These are all big fails and or big communication fails. And my question for you is, I honestly think we are entering some or have been entering some sort of credibility crisis in the space. And I think these are harbingers of something bigger to come. I'm not, I don't want to be too apocalyptic. I know that all industries and technologies have fails as you go on, but the amount of hype that's been generated around this, followed by these types of things, I personally find quite concerning. Okay, so I'm going to, I agree, and then let me be slightly contrarian, or like, Please. I don't know, add some nuance maybe, which is, I agree broadly that there is a Hey, wait, data isn't good for everything? Or like you mean like like like, hey, your data told me that Hillary Clinton was gonna win and then Trump wins. See, data can't always be true. Like there's there's kind of like shock. Can you believe it? Yeah. But to be clear, also we're losing public trust and executive trust and business leader trust in 
the field. Yes. But my contrarian point is perfect. We should lose some of that because Amazing. I know I'm, gosh, I really just 930 throughout the wild statements. No, exactly. but, but here's, here's the reason why, where I think it's good, which is I think what was happening is like, I'm going to pretend I'm like an analyst at a company, or I don't know, I'm analyzing the Trump election, whatever. And I'm going to be like, hey, you know, my model says that there's a 30% chance that Trump will win, 70% chance that uh, Hillary will win. And then my boss goes, my boss puts out a press release saying, Hillary will win, the data says it. And then it's like, well, as an analyst, you're like, uh, that's not exactly what I said. But okay, sure, whatever. You're my boss. I can't really fight that. And then Hillary loses. And then your boss is like, we can never trust data again. And you're an analyst kind of like, um. And if you're a data scientist listening to this podcast, I think there's very likely you have a personal story of something like this where you Will made do. a statement that is like loose. You know, you tried to put caveats in there and someone ran with it in a way that isn't correct. And then they got burned and then everyone's mad. And I'd rather people get burned, get mad, and then we move on from that than try and let the people just kind of run with data in ways that aren't valid, which is kind of back to my previous point of people use data to justify a lot of stuff. And I think it is good that we use data to like hone in on things and like try and make a better assessments. But like people who want to get what they want will use any tool in front of them. And hey, data science is a cool, attractive field, the 21st century, blah, 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 new data is a new oil. They will use that tool. And now we are learning that like, hey, that tool can be abused. And so we have to add nuance to what we do. And I, I think that's a net good. And the oil industry, of course, has a lot of large negative externalities as well. Um, so even if data with a new oil. That doesn't mean it's it's all that. I do think the other thing around making decisions under uncertainty, the Trump example, I, I, I think, let me get this right, but um, some people said he had like a 20% chance of winning, which I think was misinterpreted in, in a lot of ways. And I'll link to a post that Alan Downey wrote at the time about this, or maybe just after, in which he made us do the thought experiment. If you flip a coin twice, getting two heads, there's a 25% chance of that. And you wouldn't be that surprised if that happened. Now, if you flipped it three times and got three heads, that's slightly more surprising, but not super surprising. And there's a 12.5% chance of that happening, right? Which in our heads seems really low. But when you do that thought experiment, you realize it isn't actually that low. So we, as humans, don't even really, we're not actually good at thinking probabilistically, statistically, under uncertainty, right? Yes, exactly. And I think when data science first came out, people didn't even necessarily consider that as much. They're just kind of like, cool, the data scientist told me X, Y, Z. And now we're starting to realize as like a, I don't know, as a grandiose generalization of our field of like, the people around data scientists are starting to notice when data scientists say, hey, there's nuance here. Like, you actually kind of have to listen to that. Or at least that's my hope. My idolist, I don't know, maybe... You know, your project manager won't listen to that stuff. But like, hopefully people are moving more towards understanding the stuff that all has nuance and you can't just hire three data scientists and suddenly everything in your company works better because the data scientists use data to do stuff. Like, no, you really have to like sit on it. Yeah. And, and I think and it really comes back to like data can't predict the future. It just tells you the past in different ways and just like taking the time to reflect on that and understand the nuance. Yeah, it tells you the past based on whatever your way of collecting and interpreting the data was as well, infiltrated by all types of biases in the data generating process, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, and in fact, here's my example that I think about as like my, my quintessential in my head example of this. Suppose you're a data scientist and you are building, you're working in a company that gives out coupons to restaurants and or to your restaurant chain and your company has an idea that like, hey, maybe we can try and understand what you do in your first purchase to predict what's going to happen next. And suppose you as a data scientist notice in your data that 
a cheese pizza. If you buy a cheese pizza in your first purchase, the first time you come there, you will spend more money in the rest of your purchases. Suppose your data tells you that. What do you infer from that? Should you A, give out coupons for cheese pizzas to everyone else because cheese pizza is a, if you spend a cheese pizza, that will get people to spend more. Should it be, hey, we should stop giving coupons to the cheese pizza people because we know they're going to spend more anyway, so we shouldn't do that. Or is it C, or like there's like, there's maybe 10 different ways you could make a reasonable guess of what you do with that information. But like the data won't tell you what happens if you adjust what things you are doing to the customers, right? It only tells you what happened historically when people who bought the cheese pizzas, not what happens once you start giving coupons and all of that, which is fine. We have A-B tests. We have lots of things that can try and do that. But like oftentimes you don't have the time to run an A-B test or do an experiment. You just have to all make the resources, decisions based yeah. on... Yeah, and that's fine. But when you have business, you know, business people or you know, what, whoever who don't necessarily understand the nuance, just be like, oh, hey, well, the data says more money after your first cheese pizza purchase. Therefore, I'm going to do whatever I want with that information. Like that's where this stuff gets scary. And I think we are starting to reckon with that more as a field. I love the cheese pizza example. And I'm, I mean, I love cheese pizza, but I, I may, <laughs> it's a good may one. I steal that yeah. with your permission? Yeah, go for it. It's not yeah. quite stealing if I, no, I'm not, okay. Yeah. Take your permission I'm back. Sure I, I want to steal it. it from someone else. I don't know. Every, okay. Because um, <laughs> the example I've, I've given historically is, you know, churn prediction is something we seem fascinated with telling beginning data scientists about for whatever, for whatever reason. But if you predict someone's going to churn, that doesn't tell you what type of intervention to make. You want to understand why someone's churning, right? If they're churning because you haven't answered the phone, as opposed to a competitor undercuts you, your intervention is going to be totally different. Yeah, and if you've ever made a churn model, what you realize is your churn model doesn't tell you this person's 0% likely to churn, this person's 100% likely to churn. Totally. It tells you that person's 2% likely to churn and that person's 3% likely to churn, which is indeed more, but it's not like they still probably won't. You know, So it's like, it's not cut and dry. It's just, it's a very gray thing and it's not obvious even if you have a reasonably good model what you would do with it. Something yeah. I really like here that I'm hearing is that all of these like data science fails or AI fails help us as a community with all the relevant stakeholders just be more realistic about what's possible and, and what isn't. Gosh, I hope so. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I hope it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the optimistic view. Yeah, I'm wondering... Are there any fails that you've experienced? Because people talk about successes in public or not, and most of the fails we see publicly seem like potential PR stunts as well. So can you tell me about any fails you've you've experienced or been part of? Hugo, I have a talk that I give sometimes that is literally, the talk is just five of my biggest fails in the data Amazing. science field. So yes, I have, I have many of these. Maybe, could you tell us a couple yeah. that you think could be instructive for, you know, the widest audience possible? Yeah, so... Sometimes some of my fails were like, I would have a data set and it'd be something is like perfect for like a churn model, let's say churn model. And I, as a data scientist, would be like, oh, heck yeah, I'm going to take that data. I'm going to build your churn model. Our business, we're going to be great from it. And the moment you actually get the data and try it, it doesn't work, right? That there's no actual signal in the data, so the model doesn't fit. Or like, you know, the model does fit, but like because the churn predictions aren't strong enough, you can't actually act on it or whatever. And like just data science as a field, you don't know what's going to work until you try it, but you kind of have to tell, like sell people on it before you try it. And mm. that conflict sometimes goes bad. So that's a type of failure I've seen a lot. And what happens then when like with the decision maker or the person, if you're a consultant, whoever's paying your contract or... 
Yeah, well, if you're smart, what you do is before you do it, you say, hey, we're going to take this data and we're going to try and build a model. And if it turns out there's a signal, we're going to act on it. If there's not a signal, then we're going to abort the project and not, you know, we're going to abandon it. We're not going to think too hard about it. We're just going to move on. That's a smart thing to do. Now, that is not always what I've done because sometimes it's just easy and fun to get excited. And then it's like you really just have to be open and honest with your stakeholders of like, hey, we thought this would work. It did not work. Let's talk about like how we pivot. Do we try mm. using the data for a different thing? Do we whatever? Can we infer that, hey, this didn't work, but it also totaled us eight other things won't work, so we know not to waste our time on them? Like you just kind of salvage whatever you can from the experience. Great. Yeah. So that's one type of failure. <laughs> What's another failure yeah. mode? Okay, here's my favorite failure I've had in my career. So let's go back to that, you know, like suppose you're designing like loyalty programs or or you know, like you're working for marketing and you're you're designing coupon systems or things like that. And before you launch a big coupon marketing campaign, you do want to make a prediction on how much money it's going to bring in. What you would typically do if you're in like consulting or finance or whatever is you would build a financial model of how much you think you will make from this coupon. So you say something like, we're giving out 100,000 coupons. We think 20,000 of them will be redeemed. The people who buy them will end up spending an extra $20 and blah, blah, blah. Therefore, we will make a million dollars from this campaign. I, as a data scientist, said, hey, doing things at a grandiose, like at a super aggregate level in Excel, isn't that accurate? What if we built an agent-based simulation tool where we'd actually simulate each customer and be like, well, if the customer got the coupon on this day, they would have made this purchase and they would have blah, blah, blah. Like I built a whole system for that. And I used all these programming language and models and stuff and I and, and ended up kind of working. Like this, it actually would make predictions and the simulation would run and it would do all these things. But here's the problem, which is I actually ran it for companies and customers and they got these numeric predictions and they'd be like, okay, well, it's cool to know that the model says we're going to get $100 million in revenue or whatever, but our financing team needs to sign off on it and they don't understand, like they can't understand like your weird regression predicted this thing. Can you just give it to us as a couple simple formulas like in Excel? And so despite having a giant machine learning model that all these things, I would then have to go redo it just at the last minute in Excel, which is the original way of doing things because... What I predicted the thing that the companies want is the most accurate model to give them the most accurate ROI prediction. But that was not the case. What they wanted was just proof that it won't bankrupt the company, that they could hand, hand to finance, and the finance says, okay, you're good. So that was an interesting failure. That's fantastic, because this actually dovetails really nicely with this idea of needing to understand what you're building as well. And this was yeah. the decision makers coming and saying, we, we need, in order to manage the risk, we need to understand, even if the uh, model is is slightly w less performant or whatever it is. Yeah, and like companies, when I was doing this work, like companies wanted the cool model. Like they got interested, like they were sold. Like they, they legitimately said they wanted it. But then just at the end of the day, it turns out like, nah, they didn't really want it as much as they want. Just the ability to loosely say, yeah, this will bake us and finance will be okay with it. And I mean, their comms team will probably still call it AI. Right, but yes. And we got, you know, we would get customers and stuff. So like it was technically good for the business, but it wasn't ultimately what people wanted. And also the other problem, and this kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier, which is like, okay, when you're making this Excel model version, you'd be like, well, 20% of the customers will buy the coupon and they'll each spend an extra $20. And if you look at that, you'd be like, well, how did you guess 20%? How did you guess $20 for those? And if you're a consultant, what you say is, my experience from working in the market tells me these numbers, which mostly means, I don't know, I guess and it felt right. Yeah. And they're like, ah, oh, but I don't want, well, you just loosely guessed, I don't know where it felt right. I wanted hard, concrete things. And so the machine learning model feels like it's a hard, concrete thing. Because look, we're doing all these regressions and blah, blah, blah. 
But like, if you really dig into the model, your model and your agent-based simulation still has lots of assumptions in it, right? Like you're still like assuming a normal distribution and you're still blah, blah, blah. So it's actually still just as much made up pretend as the Excel version, but the made up pretend is less obvious because it's not like, oh, I guessed a 20% churn rate or whatever, or coupon redemption rate. Instead, I guessed a normal distribution or a blah, blah, blah. So it just becomes much fuzzier. So it's like the business people don't get to see it anymore, but it's still there, which is actually Mm. kind of worse. So I didn't like that. (laughs) I didn't like that part. Yeah, I understand that. Part of me wants to move on, but part of me wants to hear one more failure mode if you have one. (laughs) Okay, let me think. Oh my God. Okay, here's my, here's another good one. This is my first job out of school. And I was like a month in and the company I was working for was an e-commerce company and they had a bug on their website and sales were down by like a lot of money. And they only found it because the marketing people were looking at the daily sales amount and they're like, why is money down? Why didn't we not make money? And then they went to the engineering team who eventually realized, oh, deep in the website was a bug. But they didn't notice until the marketing team noticed. So they came to the data science team I was on or analytics is called at the time, and they said, you know, an executive's like, hey, this happened on a Tuesday. Can you send me like the last eight datas a Tuesday? Because I want to look at how they compare. And I was like a month out of school and I, ha- I had no idea not to like just say these things, which is maybe probably good for me. But I'm like, hey, no, instead of doing that, well, I'll do that. But what I really want to do is actually build a whole statistical quality control model, like an anomaly detection model, where if we use all the data, you know, because the company is growing, so we need to account for that like growth. And there's weekly seasonality and yearly seasonality. And we could build a huge model that tells us on any given day, how are our sales comparing to what we predicted and alerting that way. And that was like, people bought into that and I went and built it and it ended up being called the Adler Alert because that was my maiden name, which is not a good thing to have happen because anytime something goes wrong, they come to you. So that was a lesson for me. But what was worse was that the model didn't work. And it didn't work, like the actual prediction of like what happens each day was reasonably good. Mm. But what didn't work was we didn't, it was very hard to set the bounds of like, well, how many standard deviations away from our prediction is enough that marketing should be worried? That was problem one. But then problem two is marketing didn't say, hey, we just want overall sales. They're like, well, we want this by region. And we want this by not just predicting each daily sales, but also we need we need predictions on average order value and percent of customers who actually make a purchase and blah, blah, blah. And so we ended up having like 50 metrics we were measuring each day with uncertain bounds for what she uses the problem. And I made this all in one giant Excel spree with a million shades of red and green, and it just became incredibly unusable. So the core idea, I think, was good of like use statistical quality control, but the actual execution didn't wasn't good because things like, well, what does your UI look like? How do you avoid having an overflow of too many like anomalies going off all at once? Like all that stuff kind of tore it apart. And it was a lesson for me of like, it doesn't matter how good your model is. If all that other stuff isn't good too, your product won't actually be useful. So that was kind of a failure. Yeah, I th- and something that really speaks to to reiterate is the, the utility of what we're building, right? And what the user experience is like and how people use it to inform decisions and or deploy things into production. Yeah, and you think, well, that's not really my problem. I'm the data scientist, not the UI designer or not the product owner or blah, blah, blah. But it is always, like, it's always your problem. You can't escape it. Um, and that has been a ongoing lesson I learned over and over in my career. Mm. So I'd love to shift gears now to talk about, as, as we discussed earlier, last time we spoke, you're very interested in helping people make decisions, use it like using insights in PowerPoints and, and, and dashboards and this type of stuff. And since then, you've done a lot of work in putting machine learning models in production. I think this will be interesting for a lot of people, particularly as, correct me if I'm wrong, but the latter can be far more lucrative as a working data scientist these days, right? Yes and no. 
So I think it is probably the case that if you are a like quote unquote machine learning engineer, your salary is quote unquote more. I don't know why that one's a quote. Your salary is more than a quote unquote data scientist. But I also think there are far more data science jobs out there and yes. there's more data science work. So even if you have a machine learning engineer with like a higher salary, because there's not necessarily that much work at any given company, you might often find yourself doing regular software engineering a lot. So it's like, it's kind of not like, ah, oh, this is the strictly superior career to be in. It's like, it just kind of like, what trade-offs do you want to make, you know, for kind of like optimal happiness? Yeah, I, I think I'm also speaking to almost in the cultural consciousness. So there is this kind of, I suppose, gatekeeping of ML in production or not quite. Well, there is the gatekeeping. That isn't quite what I'm getting at. I'm also, where my mind is going, there's a wonderful post that I'll share in the show notes by um, Mark Sarafim, who... He's um, in developer relations at PyTorch. It's called the post is called "Working Class Deep Learner," and it's, it kind of takes you through a day in the life of someone who's not necessarily a machine learning in, engineer, but kind of doing all just the building models and and debugging and all of these and these, these types of things. So we almost, I suppose, where I'm getting at is there's almost some like bizarre classist like elitism happening here, right? Yeah, and it's. Okay, so I think you're hitting on a couple of things. One, in machine learning engineer, people like idealize that machine learning engineer means you are like doing complex gradient calculations and like, ah, but the neural network architecture needs this many layers to blah, blah, like, like you're like, like, you know, your GIF with like a thousand equations flying around and it's mm. so like, in, you know, like m- mathematical wizardry. And like, if you're a data scientist, you know, you're not doing that. You're just like, okay, we're cool. You ran a logistic regression, and that's like. Mm. Well, and I think that in practice, that's not. I think most machine learning, I mean, machine learning job work is still scikit-learn. You know, our logistic regression. Like, I think most of the work in machine learning is not that. Like, Agreed. how many layers? Blah, blah, blah. Like, like I think that is still extremely rare within machine learning. And I also think there is a. And there's like a weird, like we put that kind of like galaxy, like like math equation, like that's the true fun intelligent work. Like we put that on a weird pedestal. And also, and I've complained about this back on the podcast me and Emily do, which is there's a weird sexism thing where it's like, ah, the most, like the work that like only the men can do is this like really mathy, raw. I'm so like, ah, I don't want a job if I'm not using a, you know, a billion parameters in my model. And it's like, actually running a billion parameter model may not require as much like dexterous thinking as trying to take messy churn data and figure out how to get a logistic regression to run consistently for market. You know, like, it's not, it's not the case that one is strictly more thinky than the other. It's just like a weird, like, macho, like, I need these parameters. And it's just, it's, I don't know, I find it very Let's <laughs> drill down into that a bit more. The macho-ness in the field I find fascinating. One thing I've always kind of thought is, like, throwing more compute at something, like, check out our, like, a thousand GPUs and TP, whatever it is, right? It, it does almost seem like a quote unquote, and this is a term in the common lexicon, so I, I feel comfortable saying it. It seems like a dick swinging contest a lot of the time, in all honesty. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I don't, I don't know. It does, I, I don't know. Maybe it's because of where I am in my career or whatever. I, I have no interest in that. It's just so like, yeah, it's so like, What's the point? Like, cool, your your model has an extra billion parameters. Like, I don't know. Like, I've been a data scientist for 15 years. Almost everything I can do, I have done, could have been solved by a well-crafted logistic regression or linear regression. And I don't think that's true for just me. I think that's probably 80 to 90% of data scientists. And I think that work we are, 80 to 90% of work we're, data science work is doing is valuable and useful and good. And I think the work where it is a billion parameters, blah, 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 I think oftentimes those models don't end up going into production or do whatever. It's mostly just to get your, like, 
company cred. And it's like, I don't know. Uh, it just runs in the wrong way. It's very, yeah, yeah. very showy. Yeah. Absolutely. I So where I want to go now, I think I'd like to know about kind of your career changing from developing insights to putting machine learning in production, maybe with a view to helping people understand what that looks like. Because I assume there'll be a bunch of listeners who do a lot of data science, but maybe don't put machine learning in production, and they'd like to be able to do that. So I've had a lot of people ask me about that too. And the thing I say is like, I don't think the change is actually that hard. I don't think you have to learn that many skills. Like really, it's like you learn Docker, you learn some you know, REST API, how do you make an you know, hit a REST API. Me and Heather Nolas have a couple blog posts about how to do this in R. There's a million about how to do them in Python and blah, blah, blah. Like, there's a lot of material out there. The hardest part, I think, is finding the opportunities to try this. Because if you're a data scientist on a team that doesn't think at all about putting things in production or making APIs or stuff like that, it is hard to find an opportunity to start doing that. But if you are on a team that does do that kind of work and you haven't experienced it before, it's very, I think in those cases, it's very quick to be able to pick up Docker. If you have three data scientists around you who know how to use Docker, they can probably help you learn So it. what I'm hearing there is it's more about exposure to the challenges and the tools and the questions than like getting up and running with all the te- technical stuff. Yes, exactly. And I, I, I just have not seen that many people who are like, you know, reasonably happy at the like PowerPointy ideas-y kind of data science who haven't, when put in the right situation, been able to transition to the Docker, REST API, blah, blah, blah kind of data scientist. Like, I don't think it's that hard. But I don't think there are that many of those opportunities because of what we talked about. There's not as much machine learning work. And I also think because so many people want those machine learning work kind of a thing, it's just harder to break in because there's so many people who are like, please, 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 I got to do that kind of stuff. So I think if you're a data scientist who is interested in that work and you want to do some of it, Think less about like, oh my God, what what boot camp do I need to do to learn whatever? And much more about like, well, how can I create my own opportunities for the exposure to that? Or try and like find a situation at my current company or something like that where I can pick it up organically. You also mentioned that you and Heather have, have written some posts about uh, deploying machine learning in production using R. And I think the R deployment story is underknown. I think a lot of people yeah. feel like, uh, for whatever reason, there's something, you know, and I think we're getting better over the past couple of years, but maybe you can tell us a bit, like demystify or myth, myth bust. Let's do yeah, myth bust. Okay. Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 myth bust. Let's bust the myth that R is no good for deploying models into production. Suppose you had a model that you did just want to predict every time a customer made a purchase, do you think they're going to make another purchase or is this their last one, right? Like some sort of churn model, right? That could be as simple as a logistic regression with a couple input parameters. It doesn't have to be a giant neural network, blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, cool. It's just a simple logistic regression. Well, how do you get that code to run? Oh, you need to do all these pipeline things or blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, really all you need is a computer that runs that code that somehow other computers can hit it or you know, like ask that computer what the answer is. And that's a REST API. And Python has that REST API, has REST APIs with libraries like Flask, with Fast API. There are lots of them. And so I think people in the Python community are typically a little more software engineering like. And so they kind of pick those stuff up quickly. Cool, we can make a REST API, blah, blah, blah. R has libraries to do that too. R has something called Plumber, which is basically the exact same as Flask or Fast API or whatever, but it's an R. And because of that, you can do the exact same thing with R, where it's like you take your R code and you have it served to other computers. And that's what we did at T-Mobile. It got hit. Our R code is getting hit. These models are getting hit a million times a day when the stuff we were building. And it was totally fine. And it worked. And it wasn't a big deal. But 
I think what happens is because most of the people who are doing this kind of machine learning work are kind of in Python. And most of the people, you know, a lot of the people who are using R are more on the data science you make PowerPoints that I think people are just like, well, since most people use Python, you can only use Python. And I'm not going to think very deeply about that beyond there. But like there are companies that use R. It's not a big deal. There are lots of languages that have REST APIs and things like that and model. Like it's just not everything needs a million parameters, hyper fast, blah, blah, blah. And I think the gatekeeping kind of Python only, like it just comes with this notion of like for something to be in production, it has to be big data and it has to be massive and it has to a bajillion, retrain every hour on itself. And it's like, no, you can have a model that, you know, that's in R, in Scala, in whatever language, you retrain it once a month manually, all this stuff, and that's fine. That's still production and that is still a mm. from a data science team. I also wonder how much of us feeling this way is an artifact of us both spending too much time on Twitter as well. <laughs> Right? I and think no, I think the Twitter community is less bad in terms of only Python and production. I think if you randomly pull a data scientist from any company, they'd say, oh well, Python's the production language. But I also think maybe it's like Twitter's more recalcitrant. Is that a word? That feels like a word. I think maybe like people outside of Twitter would be more open to, hey, let's try it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you can have better conversations, or let's say um more well-rounded conversations outside Twitter when the algorithm isn't just surfacing. The, I, I don't think Twitter is well known for its nuanced takes. Yeah, I definitely agree. not. And that's actually one one of the inspirations behind starting to podcast again. So, the other thing that has happened that we mentioned at the start is that you've transitioned genders. I sure have. Yes, and if you'll notice from our last podcast, my name has changed and stuff. Yes, yes, well, that is true. <laughs> you, no, you'll recall that we actually went and retroactively changed That's the name, not in the recording, but right. In, but yeah, right, yeah, we didn't yeah, like exactly, voice over. We didn't, like, yeah. was chocolate. Yeah, yeah, we didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I don't have a, a, a super well formed question. I'd really like to explore whatever, whatever issues you've found most interesting in your transition, but I am interested what it's like to transition in the data science space at this point in time. Yeah, so I will say I'm very fortunate for many reasons. One is that I was quite senior by the time I transitioned, right? I was already had been a director of data scientists and a principal, blah, blah, blah. So like, I was very fortunate my career was well established. I also was quite public on Twitter and podcasts like yours and things like that. So it like I couldn't like go away for a month and then suddenly come back at a new job with a different name and not have not have people make the connection. I just had to bite the bullet. Yeah, I was really worried that, especially because at the time I was in consulting, I was very worried that, you know, if I transition, then people won't take me seriously. I'll have to do a transphobia. Like, I won't be able to go in front of a boardroom of people and like, you know, in, anymore because people think I'm weird or whatever. And like, none of that happened to me. And like, I don't know. I'm, again, fortunate. I pass fairly well. I have a lot of, my career is already established. But like, that actually has gone quite well. That said... I have had to deal with a lot of sexism. So that was a surprising, I mean, that shouldn't have been surprising, but that was kind of like a, a really hard thing to be like, oh, surprise, like now you're a woman, congrats. Well, the I, first job I got after transitioning, I uh, it's like, oh, by the way, and also here's a ton of sexism you had to haven't had to deal with before in joy. So that was a trouble, but the, the transphobia, not really a big thing, the sexism, that was a problem. I do think you've hit on a key point there, which is being male, I can intellectually understand sexism and I've seen it occur and all of these things but I, I think transitioning makes you like it becomes incredibly real for you in, in a way that like it isn't real for for me yeah it was kind of like a well this sucks like this is not good at all and I knew it would suck but it's just very 
tough to go into work every day when you're like, oh, and then I have to deal with a sexist boss and stuff like that. Which, if you know, I'm sure women, there are lots of people dealing on this, listening to this podcast might be like, oh, yes, I've had to deal with a sexist situation. And yeah, gosh, I don't know. I am sorry for all of you. I'm new to this and it is very awful for me. And you know, I and like that said, I, you know, I'm now at Saturn Cloud and Saturn Cloud's great and I'm having a good time. But like, yeah, at, at points having transitioned, I have now had to deal with a new thing and that that has been challenging. So I don't know, maybe that's kind of a downer answer, but overall, very happy I'm transitioned. All of it's good. The only thing that I will say has been a struggle is just surprise sexism, not surprise transphobia. What are the the biggest challenges you've discovered in terms of sexism in the workplace, in, in data science in, in particular? I will say, okay, that's a great question. So I was like a data scientist for like 12 or so, a bunch of years before transitioning. And like every, you know, like quarterly review of my, me or whatever, I always get the review of like, Jacqueline, so well, Jonathan at the time, Jonathan is so good at, you know, always saying, saying the truth and even in hard situations going to like get people to try and understand like the core reality of it. And like, like, thank goodness Jonathan's always speaking out and things like that. I'm like, oh, cool. And I got very used to that. And I think a lot of my career excelled because I would say stuff that wasn't always the like best thing politically to say, but people like, ah, oh, good for Jonathan saying that and that helped my career. But boom, I, let me tell you, the moment I transitioned and got a new job, it was suddenly like, I literally for the first time in my life got a quarterly review that is Jacqueline is difficult to work with. Jacqueline doesn't know how to speak to other people. Jacqueline needs to learn like when to not say stuff. And it's like, hmm, like what has changed in the 15 years just right now where suddenly I'm getting that feedback? And that was a real challenge. I did not handle that review gracefully, I will say. <laughs> I can't imagine anyone would handle it. I, I think it would take the utmost patience and to be able to handle something like that with any grace. Right. And but but if you're being told you're uh, you're being told you're difficult and then you don't handle that gracefully, that is a form of continuing like, ah, see, you aren't uh, you're taking this difficult too. We have proven our point. And it's like, that doesn't feel good. Yeah. Is this something which we're seeing change currently? I don't know. I've only I've only been, you know, on this side of it for a couple of years. So I I honest to goodness couldn't tell you if they're seeing change. I will say for me personally, it is very much a situation of what environment I'm in. I've been in a number of situations where I haven't had to deal with sexism. So it's like, for me, it's not like, ah, oh, we're getting better as a society. It's like, I have learned how to quickly identify, or I've started to learn. I have not learned. I've started to learn how to quickly identify these situations and gracefully remove myself from, from them when it is not in my best interest to be there. But that's not like a fix for the whole, all of it, you know? Of course. Yeah. I'm not an expert on sexism in the workplace. And there are lots of people out here who have much better thoughtful things to say than me. I will just say I personally am surprised. And I shouldn't have been, but it is just surprising how much it is not a great time once you're in it. Well, I think as I, maybe there's a, a slightly more sophisticated or a direct way of saying what I said before. I think the surprise comes with experiential knowledge as opposed to propositional knowledge, particularly when yeah. you're on the receiving end of something. And I honestly, I, I, my intention wasn't to put you in a position to represent, you know, experts on sexism, that, that type of stuff. I was genu yeah. genuinely interested. And I do, I really appreciate you you sharing, you know, difficult aspects about what it is to work yeah. as, as you. Yeah, well, and I will say, I mean, I have been on a lot of podcasts now. That's me. This is the humble brag. I've been on so many podcasts. No, I've been on quite a few and like, Lots of people want to ask me about like, well, how do you become a data scientist? How do you get to be a manager? Like, ever, like I've not many people have been like, so tell me about sexism and transitioning and stuff. So I wish more people asked me about that because I do think this is stuff 
we should talk about a lot on podcasts. But I don't know. Thank So I guess thank you, Hugo, for bringing up these difficult topics. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> so this is dovetails nicely into something I wanted to chat about, the fact that you and our um, good friend and mutual colleague, Emily Robinson, had a podcast uh, around building data science careers based on a book or related, correlated, correlated with, correlated to a book you wrote together. We'll include links in, in the show notes. But with data science careers, Jacqueline, What's the hardest part? Whew, uh, yeah. yeah. So that is, yeah, yeah. That's another and thing that I apologize for yeah. asking a question that's easy to ask. And div- it's yeah. like someone sends you an email, like an email forwarding, like a document that's 12 pages. And it's like, hey, what do you think of this? And it's like, come on, you wrote four words. But yeah. Yeah. No, no, I think that's. What are some of the big challenges in in the space building a career? So here's the thing I have learned by writing a book about giving, which is some form of giving advice, right? Like the book Build a Career in Data Science, it's some form of, Hey, here's how to get your first job, how to become a manager, how to blah, blah, blah. It's a lot of like just practical tips for growing your data science career. And I think the book was a net good for the world. And the podcast Absolutely. was a good. On, yeah. on top of that, yeah. you, you also interviewed a, a lot of interesting people in yeah. the space as well. So it, was, it wasn't necessarily just your and um, Emily's thoughts and potential biases there, but you know, getting a community. It takes a community to, it takes a village to build a data science career. I'm sorry, I wouldn't say that again, but. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and I don't think anything in there is like, well, controversial out of nowhere, totally like, like, but, but the problem when you have these sorts of books is like when someone comes to you and says like, Hey, I read your book, I listen to your podcast, whatever. How, but, but how do I like, like, what are the things for me specifically that can help me get the data science career? What is that like, like, or I have this particular hurdle, blah, blah, blah. That, like the reality is, is that like data science is not a particularly easy field to get into these days. It's just there's a lot of people who want to get in. There aren't that many jobs, and the people who are giving out the jobs, like they're like, I don't feel like training people. I just want to hire someone who's a senior. Not universally, but like it's just it's the odds are not particularly, you know, easy. And at some level, does this just hold on a second though? Does this sure. also speak to their incentive system that's coming down from the executive? Like we've invested in ML and we're blah 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 blah, and we need to see this and we need to see that, so that the hiring managers actually are in a bind of their own in terms of who they who they can bring on in order to. Yeah, I think it's like a risk mitigation thing, like which is to say, right? If someone hasn't been a data scientist before. And I don't know if I believe this, but like, I think you could be like, well, we don't know if once they get this job, if they'll be, you know, quickly able to pick it up or if they're going to struggle because they don't understand some things yet or whatever. Like, you just don't know. And in theory, someone who has senior, like, oh, I've already been a data scientist. You're like, well, if they've been a data scientist at one job, then I know they can handle this job. I don't think that's actually true. But I think that is an easy thing when you're hiring to tell yourself to limit the field of people so you don't have to interview literally everyone. So I think it is maybe just a heuristic people use to make hiring easier and faster. I don't know if I, like, I don't think I like it and I don't think the logic is sound, but that would be my guess as to why it happens. So what I'm hearing is that getting your first data science job is one of the hardest parts. I think so. And we, a lot of times, Emily and I will tell people, it's like, well, don't start by getting a data science job, start by getting an analyst job or whatever, and like slowly like work towards that. But like, that's not easy. Right. That's like, and I think that this is kind of the point I was getting to, which is like, when people see a book like Build a Career in Data Science, what they really hope is like, ah, oh, what's the easy, sweet trick I can just, you know, or like, like when they, when they talk to us, like, ah, oh, what's the easy, sweet trick I can do just to like really easily, like, ah, that'll get me the job. If I, if I put the word GitHub, if I put a GitHub, a link to my GitHub on my resume, that'll be the, the sweet, quick thing that gets me the job. And I don't think the reality of that is the case. I think 
getting a career in data science these days, it is a lot of hard things you have to do. And it's like, it's not easy. And I think we can't make that, like, like we can help you and guide you and like the book can like give you direction, but I don't think we can just make that an easy thing. And that is the hard thing when people talk to us is like, we have to like reckon with the fact that I can't just give out a, ah, here's a quick, fast tip to get the job. It's like, no, actually, we're just going to explain to you exactly what hard work you probably will want to do. I want to read to you a, a message someone sent me today. It was a Twitter DM, because I think it speaks to a challenge of finding this this type of work. Hi, Hugo. Hope all is well. I'm looking for career advice as I've been stuck on finding a new job or internship. I live in NYC, doing my MS in financial engineering, part-time online, BS in software engineering, which never practiced. Started as a financial analyst, which I've been doing for a decade. Started doing my MS degrees in hopes of finding a better job. Here comes the dilemma. Now, this is... He hits the nail on the head here. This guy wrote to me, here comes the dilemma. None of the jobs I'm applying to will be full-fledged developer roles, but interviews are literally designed for one. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate we yeah. filter out a lot of um, you know, false negatives in order to reduce the number of false positives. But this is a real bind that a lot of early career people find, right? Yes. I think there are not many data science jobs and... I would say like a high percentage of people interviewing of interviewers are not well equipped to interview data scientists. Like they just I think it's very easy to give a bad interview, which to your point here could be giving a coding test on the job isn't actually that much coding. Or like for data science, asking you questions of like, well, compute this, you know, compute this the moment of this particular statistical function when that has nothing to do with the job. Like it's very easy to come up with questions that are both not actually accurate to what the day-to-day job is and also harshly penalize people who are not necessarily good at working on the spot when people are looking at them, which often tend to be people like women and minorities. And blah, blah, blah. So like, yeah, I just, it's a harsh, like it's not easy to have all this stuff line up. So yes, I totally agree with your assessment and I feel the plight of your poor Twitter DM person. So for people wanting to break it into the space, besides buy your book and listen to your podcast, what <laughs> yeah. what are a few pieces of advice you'd, you'd give them? Yeah, so this is where I get back to like, I don't think there's any advice that can make this easy. What I think you can do is reckon with, you know, recognize the fact that like, hey, this is going to be tricky. It's doable, but it's tricky. So think about how can you put things on your resume that look like a data science position but are not, right? So if you if getting the first data science position is hardest, what can you have on there that's similar, right? Is it a project you did during your, you know, grad school or whatever? Is it a boot camp? Is it blah blah blah? Like like how can you help people who are reading your resume be like, ah, I see this person could be a good data scientist without having the I've been a data scientist somewhere else. And I think there are lots of ways to do that. And I think there are a lot of ways to do that. And if you're a position you're like, I really don't have anything like that, well, then it's going to, you know, it is going to take work to get something on there that will be like that, which is okay. like, like, then, like, it's about like making sure you can set that work up correctly or decide, hey, that's not like, that doesn't make sense for me. I'm going to do something slightly different, you know? Yeah. Something just ca- that came to mind for me, and I've seen this happen several times, not a lot, but, you know, uh, several times is people in non data science positions. I used to work with someone on a, on, on a marketing team who, said to the head of marketing, hey, look, I've just built a dashboard to do, do this and like figure out any value you can add in your current position and then start talking to people in the company who are interested in, in data and that type of stuff and see what you can do there. Yeah, 
And we talk about that in the book. And that is great, both for getting you experience. And you also may decide, actually, I don't like this as much as I thought it would. Yeah. I would. You know, like maybe I thought it'd be also it's a cool TensorFlow, blah, blah, blah. And actually it is still mostly data cleaning. And like, you know, like like it is both a good practice for you and you learn a lot about if you like the work and what you don't like and stuff like that. So that is one great opportunity. There's also like doing stuff on your own on the side. There's, you know, enrolling in a boot camp. Like there's there's a lot of different approaches, but there's a lot of different approaches. There's not five words you put on your resume to like secret trick code words that get your uh, resume in. Exactly. So I think we've been a bit critical of data. Well, I've definitely been a bit critical of, uh, of data science. I want to get even more critical in, in a second, but I want to give us some room to breathe beforehand. I'd love to hear a bit about what, what currently interests you in the space or, or excites you. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to plug this. Maybe not a plug. Maybe it's a plug. I don't know. I'm going to talk about why I like my current job. So I'm currently the head of data science at Saturn Cloud. Mm-hmm. And we at Saturn Cloud are building like a data science platform. We have built and are continuing to build a data science platform, basically like a place like, hey, instead of doing data science on your laptop, I want to do data science on the cloud so I can start up a resource. I can attach a GPU to it. I can attach it to a DAS cluster. I can blah, 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 whatever. I actually am really excited about this because this is the first time in my career I am making a product for data scientists instead of consuming one as a data scientist. And I think this is actually a lot of fun because it is fun to be like, I'm going to help the people who I know and I'm going to make a product that I think will make people's lives better. And like, I think that's really cool. And that really gets me excited. And I don't know, I've done a lot of like consulting for marketing, stuff like that, where like, I don't know, every day you kind of wake up and you're like, is marketing real? Like, I like, are these email like targeting? Like, is this actually a real thing? But like, no, I can look at the product we're building at Saturn Cloud. And that's really fun. So I guess which is to say, the thing that I've really been jazzed up about is both Saturn Cloud, which is fun. And also I really have, found I enjoy product development of, hey, how can I make a product that people use and like? When I think about data science and like careers and stuff, people are like, oh, I want to build machine learning models, blah, 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 blah. But like, there's like a whole thing of like, hey, do you want to try building products, whatever that might be? And like, that is, I think, tangential to data science and really fascinating. And I get really excited about it. Can you tell us a bit about how data science can be used in the product development? Process. I will say the thinking. I don't think I don't necessarily think like ah, you can use a linear regression to decide if this feature is part of your product or not. But I think a lot of the thinking is similar, right? Like with data science, you have to like take a data set and you have to like clean it up, and you got to build a model, and you got to say ah, the, the the data science model is saying that you know like ah, this thing is important to churn, but is it really important to churn, or is it just an artifact of the particular type of regression I'm doing, right? Like you got to do a lot of this like reasoning about things you only have partial information on, mm. which is exactly what product development is like, right? You're like, hey, forget Saturn Cloud. I'm building a USB coffee cup warmer or whatever. Like, what is actually important to people wanting to use this product? Like, like well, we know people t- tend to buy the color, the new color. Should we invest more of that? Like, it's, 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 yeah, you're just, again, you're trying to make decisions based on uh, limited information. And sometimes that information is data, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just like, colloquially talking to other people in the field and all that. And I I think there's a lot of overlap and I find that fascinating. Yeah, I think the importance of qualitative resources in product development is incredibly important. Just speaking with with users. Also, it can be slightly awkward at some point, but when I've worked in product development, watching users use the product for the first time, like getting them to share their screen and seeing what people do, because you think you set up stuff and think they're going to do something and they'll do all types of wacky stuff. Yeah, and that's the same thing with data science, where you look at data science, like you look at your data set, you're like, ah, you know, customers always buy a cheese pizza. If they buy a cheese pizza, they always spend more. And then it's like, okay, you actually go to a restaurant, like one of your restaurant chains, and you look, and it's like, oh yeah, it's because the people who buy a cheese pizza are a family, and families buy more. So it doesn't have anything to do with the cheese pizza. It has to do with the fact that if a family is all there together, right? Like there's 
such a overlap and like, hey, you don't want to just use data. You also want to think about things and you also want to collect it like information in other ways. And like, yeah, I love I it's like it's like it's all puzzles, you know? Like, I don't know. Awesome. So yeah. I now want to talk. We talked about we would, we had a conversation being critical of the output of of data science work. I'd like to now have a conversation to let's t- take a critical look at what data scientists do on on a daily basis. And I just want to make clear this is with a view towards doing more fulfilling, more nourishing work that creates more value for the organizations we decide to spend, you know, 9 to 5, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week working with and working for in a lot of cases. To that end, I've actually I've recently read a book called Bullshit Jobs and the, my intention is not to say that data science is a bullshit job. I clearly do not do not think that. What I do want to say is that I have conducted several surveys throughout data uh, science communities with respect to how many people think how much of their work is actually useful. And a lot of these surveys, I've seen that you know over fifty percent of people felt that less than fifty percent of their data science work had any impact on the organization measured in human hours. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I will say first, if you are a data scientist and fifty percent, fifty percent of your work is useful, I would say that's a great win. Like you're doing great. Like fifty percent is yeah. good. But yes, I yeah. For many, yeah. it was a lot, a lot less. And so when I read this book by David Graeber, who's a, a wonderful anthropologist who sadly passed away in in, in twenty twenty, he wrote an essay around a decade ago about the increase in the number of bullshit jobs in the modern world. And he received hundreds of replies saying, what you wrote resonates with me so much. I do this, I do, you know, telling him about all the bullshit they they had to do. Um, so he decided to write a book around it based on a lot of um, the conversations and, and letters he, he had and, and, and received. He defines, I'm not going to give his precise definition, but essentially the most important point isn't only that these jobs serve no purpose, create no value or create negative value. It's that the person who performs them feels they create no value or negative value. I've heard this referred to as job LARPing, where you go and you pretend to like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Then there's, I think both Kramer and George do it for most seasons of Seinfeld in a a variety of ways. (laughs) I think there's one season where Kramer just has a suitcase with crackers in it and he sits in his office and eats. (laughs) It's <laughs> crackers. But um, so Graeber's book, he creates a typology or taxonomy of bullshit jobs, which include what he calls flunkies, goons, duct tapers, box tickers, and taskmasters. So as I said, I don't think data science is a bullshit job per se, but I think it can have elements of these, particularly duct tapers and, and box tickers. So I'd love to discuss these with you. And duct tapers, of course. I want to read this book so badly. Uh, like It sounds fascinating. I haven't it, read it, but yes, let's dive in. So duct tapers actually comes from software, of course. And so he writes, duct tapers are employees whose jobs exist only because of a glitch or fault in the org where they are to solve, sorry, who they are, Sorry, who are there to solve a problem that ought not to exist? One example is taking a bunch of technologies and applying some duct tape to make them work together, okay? He uses the term box tickers to refer to employees or functions who exist only or primarily to allow an organization to be able to claim it is doing something as opposed to actually actually doing it. So with that set as context, do these resonate in some way? So I have two data science scenarios of why data science jobs are bullshit that I think maybe align with these two, like somewhat. So it loosely resonates. And let me Mm. give you my examples and you can tell me if these fall in. 
So the first one is you're at a company. They don't have, or there's a company. They don't have data scientists. And maybe they, they're, maybe they're a company that, um, I don't know, sends out, you know, they're a company that sends, that, that sells, you order flowers from them online and they've never done anything with data science. And someone's like, we should use our data on what flowers people order to like, in, like, like automatically send emails to people based on, you know, what flowers they should buy next in the season and stuff. But we should use data to better market, use for our marketing. And so you hire three data science team and someone like some executives, like, I'm going to be the data science executive, blah, blah, blah. And then you, the data scientists get hired and critically quickly pretty quickly they realize oh my god this is not like a real like like there's just not a use for data here like you're you buying flowers has nothing to do with what machine learning models tell you what emails to send it has to do with like what holidays are happening or like events in your life but you don't want to get let go and your boss doesn't want to make it look bad that you have data scientists who aren't doing anything so you quickly jump from model to model okay we're going to make one that does email marketing? We're going to do churn. We're going to do blah, blah, blah. You're going through all these things. And each one, you're like, ah, this is going to be the, the, the machine thing. And just like, none of them can succeed because like the data, like you're just not dealing with a problem set that really needs data scientists. And I think that's kind of the bullshit job. And I, I've been there where it's just like, I don't think what we're doing is real. And no one will listen to me when I say that because like it looks bad for everyone. So we're just going to keep playing pretend. And so I think that's one bummer scenario. I, yeah, and I think that kind of aligns nicely with the box ticker, depending on the motivation for them doing it. But I mean, the definition was employees who exist to allow an organization to claim it's doing something that it isn't actually doing. So yes, yeah. yes, okay. So then I say box ticker. Yeah, I think I would say maybe the majority of machine learning at companies falls into this. Mm. We're like. You're just in scenarios where like actually machine learning isn't really relevant here, but because we want to be like on the cutting edge and blah, 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 data's a new oil, we're trying machine learning and mm -hmm. it's just not working out, which is fine, but it's a risk and a bummer. And I don't think you can necessarily avoid it. Like the people at that flower company may have not known not to hire data scientists. It's just a bummer scenario. And perhaps their competition oh, yeah. was hiring data scientists as well, or they thought that this was what their type of business needed to do at that point in time in order to gain competitive advantage. Right. And if your flower company has been declining in sales for the last three years, you're going to try anything, right? Like it's not a it's not a ridiculous thing to try. It just whatever may not work. And then we're it getting into back to our beginning. Though, right? It is very expensive. Yeah. yeah. And we're getting back to our beginning of the conversation thing we were saying of like the second type I think of data science bullshit job is maybe tangentially related, I think maybe closer to the box ticker, which is like your data science team to help produce ideas. And you are working for an executive who wants power in the company and blah, blah, blah. And so the executive like knows that every time they go into a presentation, if they have data to back it, that makes them look better or whatever, you know, so like, or, and maybe it's not one executive, maybe the whole company, because it's like a, it's like a mutual, it's like an arms race. Everyone who has data is better off than the people who don't have data. Like every team is like arming each of themselves with data scientists. And like, I need data scientists on my team to prove my points right. And I need a data scientist. Someone else is like, well, I need data scientists to disprove their point. And so you have a whole group of data scientists who are making all these PowerPoints and insights and things like that. But like all together, that's not really providing necessarily the company with more information. It's just burning a bunch of money so that people can argue with each other. I've been on those teams too. Sounds like yeah. mutually assured data. Mad, right? Yeah. It's it's like Kathy O'Neill's book, Weapons of Math Destruction. Yeah. It's like it's maybe like a different idea with the same pun. Absolutely. And her pun's Which is far great better, I, yeah. I think. Oh yeah, yeah. Um I'll blame it on the nine thirty thing. Or ten thirty now. Whew. No, but the pun was mine. <laughs> oh, I, okay, yeah. I do think I I do 
I am attracted to the idea, the analogy of an arms race to who, who has the most data and who can, you know, build the most sophisticated models and that type of stuff. Because we do, we do see that. And that is not, once again, to denigrate the value that's created by data science and machine learning. I want to make that clear. Well, yeah. And we're t- like, we've spent the last decade telling you that your data needs to be, your company needs to be a data driven company. I'm like, well, what does that mean? At its logical conclusion, it means what we just described. Every team has a bunch of data scientists to argue with each other so the executives can do what they think is best. And that's like, you know, if we eased back on the data-driven stuff and really just like use data just where it was necessary as opposed to every possible scenario, like we might have actually been better. And I think that is a second type of a data science bullshit job. And that does not feel fun when you're like, all I'm doing is giving a PowerPoint to a person who's going to not really listen to it and just use it as a tool to do whatever they want. It's not great. Those are fantastic examples of the type of bullshit I think we do encounter. And of course, this is not the the only thing, but I, but I think it's important to identify these in order to figure out what the non-bullshit parts are so we can do more of those. Yes, yes. And, and like, I don't know if I'm going to make up a total number. If 30% of data scientists have these sorts of bullshit jobs, I don't know if the odds are that high. You know if it's that high, but like there are jobs that are not that. If you're one of those people, like there is hope. Like there are other jobs besides that. I also, it's it's not like your job is one of these bullshit things or not. It is often that you are like half of your job. Yes, this, right. Like exactly. maybe half of the insights are for just weird political stuff, and half is super useful. And like you never really know. It's like uh, like you, you can't really tell when you're making a PowerPoint if it's going to be used because it's needed or it's going to be used as like a political implement. So like it's all gray and messy, and you can't. Like, you can't just, like, we can't as a field just, like, remove the bad and now we're all good. Like, they're all tied in together. I'm going to say something horrible, which is it reminds me of marketing in, in, in that sense. I mean, there's the old saying that, you know, 50% of marketing works, we just don't know which 50% or something like that, right? Yeah, no, I think that is, I I think that is 100% true with data science. Like, we just don't know which, like, you can't isolate which part is the useful part of data science and we just kind of have to try our best to mitigate the bad. Absolutely. And to learn. Yeah. From what works and, and what doesn't. I want to take the liberty to read just one more section of bullshit jobs to our listeners and to you, because this gives insight into how other people in organizations may view data scientists and, and the data function. Okay, so this is someone David Graeber correspond with. He changes their name and certain, certain details, but he writes, Irene, for example, worked for several major investment banks in onboarding monitoring whether the bank's clients, in this case, various hedge funds and private equity funds, were in compliance with government regulations. In theory, every transaction the bank engaged in had to be assessed. The process was self-evidently corrupt, since the real work was outsourced to shady outfits in Bermuda, Mauritius, or the Cayman, and or the Cayman Islands. And they invariably found everything to be in order. Nonetheless, since a 100% approval rate would hardly do, an elaborate edifice had to be erected so as to make it look as if sometimes they did indeed find some problems. So Irene would report that the outsider reviews had okayed the transaction and a quality control board would review Irene's paperwork and duly locate typos and other minor errors. Then the total number of quote-unquote fails in each department will be turned over to be tabulated by a metrics division This allowing everyone involved to spend hours every week in meetings arguing over whether any particular fail, quote unquote, was real. Irene wrote, there was an even, and this is is the point, she wrote, there was an even higher cast of bullshit propped atop the metrics bullshit, which were the data scientists. 
Their job was to collect the fail metrics and apply complex software to make pretty pictures out of the data. The bosses would then take these pretty pictures to their bosses, which helped ease the awkwardness inherent in the fact that they had no idea what they were talking about or what any of their teams actually did. At Big Bank A, I had five bosses in two years. At Big Bank B, I had three. The vast majority were installed, cherry-picked by higher-ups, and gifted these castles of shit. In many cases, sadly, it was how the companies met their minorities in management quota. So that diverged slightly from the critique of data science. But I think, once again, this almost emergent class system of quantitative people and people above the API to other people in a workforce is something very much worth dissecting. Yeah, I would say, I think that is maybe, I would say that is maybe more extreme than I think I've ever seen. Like that story was a lot, like I like t- people listening, I would not worry that your next job is going to be that. That like I think that is unusually bad. I, I'm sorry, I should make, yes. Yeah. I, I think you said what I should, <laughs> should extreme, make clear. And yeah. this this book is, there is a bias to telling the horror stories of b- bullshit jobs as well, right? Yes, but I do think kind of what I was talking about with like the loyalty, machine learning, like where it's like, well, now we're not assuming a 20% churn or whatever, but instead we're assuming a normal distribution. Like I do think data science very easily has the risk of becoming a method in which people hide uncertainty. So like the data science isn't providing value except for well, now we don't have to, we can pretend that all the un- stuff we don't know isn't real because, well, it's a machine learning model, which is quote unquote unbiased because it's using quote unquote data. Doing a lot of quotes today. But I think data science does have the risk of really being used as one of these tools of like actually bad systems are happening and we aren't noticing because there's data science there, which I do think is a risk. I have been in places where that has happened and that's kind of a bummer. Something I'd like to, you spend some time managing data science teams. Sure have, yeah. And it'd be nice to hear now, after some horror stories, some of, some of the good stories of how, how you manage a team of people and act as an interface between them and business decision makers who need to get value out, out of a data team and um, the ways you've seen that work well. Yeah, I do think that's kind of the data science manager's job is to like kind of deal with this stuff, right? Mm. Like if you have a stakeholder who's like, I don't want to... You know, your A-B test, I don't want to listen to it. I just want to do what I want. And like, like you know, it's kind of your job to be like, okay, well, you know, we really can't because of blah, blah. You know, like it's your kind of job to like smooth that over. And I don't, I think that sounds like a not fun job, but I do think in many ways it can be quite fun, right? It can be quite fun to be the person who like, hey, I'm going to talk to the stakeholders to get them to understand why it is a good idea to use a model here. And it's not a good idea to use a model there and all of that stuff. And I think like, I don't know. Like this is really like management book that kind of is full of itself. But I do think like the idea that like a manager doesn't tell employees what to do, like the employees tell what the manager to do and like or it's like more relation. I do think it's true. Like as a manager, I'm kind of a team with I'm like teammates with the people who are my employees. Like, you know, I'm working with them to make sure that they are getting the information they need. They are the stakeholders aren't bothering them mm. or you know, and stakeholders are giving them the clarity and they're working with me because in exchange for me helping with that stuff, they will then you know, create cool models and things like that that I can then use. And it's like creating that kind of symbiotic relationship. So it's not like a pyramid. It's an inverted pyramid, I think they say. I don't know. I try to avoid management books. And I think that at its best, that can be really good. And I've had managers who I've really liked and who have really helped me with that sort of stuff. And I do think like, yeah, I mean, the best jobs all I ha- I've always had, I've always had great managers because it's just really valuable to like have people who are who can get your back and things like that. And it can also tell you, you know what, 
we're not going to fight that fight today, Jacqueline. We're mm. just going to do what the stakeholder wants and like save our ammunition for later. Like, like, yeah, it's nice to have a boss who can uh, help you with that. And I try and be that person, but you know, it's it's hard to assess yourself. <laughs> yeah, and I, there's something in there which involves being an interface between the data function and the decision function, which I think is one of the big unsolved problems of, uh, and not that it would ever be solved per se, but something we can work towards a lot better. I think we discussed decision-making under uncertainty and expressing uncertainty to stakeholders is absolutely key. I think the other challenge, of course, is taking business questions and translating them into data questions and then getting data answers and translating them back into business answers, being that interface. I suppose I'm speaking to the idea of like type three errors, right, where you get the right answer but to the wrong question. Yeah. And making sure yeah. that you get that right. Yeah, or, right, kind of those things. Or like sometimes someone makes a model and like, well, the model... Okay, this sounds bad, but like the model says thing A, and you'd be like, well, doesn't it kind of say thing B? It's like, well, maybe. It's like, well, then let's have the conversation with the stakeholder about thing B and say, like, well, the model only partially shows this. We're going to use this as an incentive to, but you know, like, like figuring out, like, how do you diverge the original intent to kind of help the business? You know, like, like things like that. Like, hey, when should we stop using the model? for what we originally thought and instead use it to prove a different point? Or when should we just drop this entirely? Or like like all this kind of meta stuff that gets really messy and you have to think a lot about people and about the corporate strategy and things like that. That is like hugely distracting from how do you build a good model and like an often just very different skill set and a good manager helps you by avoiding that stuff, but not in a way of like avoiding it until it all blows up in your face, like legitimately smoothing out these sorts of problems. Yeah, and you've just spoken to kind of, I suppose, result, we can call it result massaging or something, like at the end of the, the pipeline, but this can creep in anywhere along the analytic pipeline, right? So if you kind of have an idea of what your manager wants to see, because you usually know what they want to see, you can actually make unconscious micro decisions during your data cleaning or analysis process that will lead you in these general directions, right? So we need to be vigilant all the way throughout the process. Yeah, I think that is true. And also, when you are working on a model for two weeks, it just becomes hard to step out of it and be like, hey, maybe I should have never made this model. I should have made a similar but distinct in some ways model. Like, it's hard to do that. And someone who is a manager who's kind of talking to you and talking to the stakeholders and blah, 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 can kind of more easily see that stuff. Mm. So just like kind of help guide you on these sorts of like, hey, how can we twist this into a different way? And I think that stuff's really fun and helpful. And like, I like that part of doing the management. And it doesn't have to be a manager who does that. A technical lead or a principal on a team can also do that kind of work. But it is kind of like a leadershipy kind of role to have. How, how do you go about Figuring out whether you want to stay managing teams or being an IC or principal data scientist. I'll tell you what I did, which is switched back and forth between them like four times. Right. <laughs> and I don't, you don't, I don't know if I would recommend that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I went from being an IC to like a manager, then a director, then back to an IC, and then to a tech lead, and then back to a manager. And I've kind of bounced back and forth. And people like say, hey, be careful, because once you start on the management track, your tech skills are going to kind of get soft and then you won't be able to bounce back. And I bet that is often true, but like there are lots of, especially in data science, there's lots of manager roles where you're still also doing coding and things like that. Whether it is literally a manager or like you're a principal where you're doing a lot of architecture and mentoring that way. Like I think there are a lot of these jobs where it's like you are leadership-ish, but you're also still coding and mentoring and all that. And I think those sorts of roles are nice ways to dabble. That said, I do not think I super enjoy being like purely a director or like, you know, an executive who like all they do is go to meetings and talk strategy. Like, I do not like that. I really like coding and stuff. So 
it took me a while to learn that, hey, just because something is higher up on the corporate ladder means I should try and get that job and it will be more fun. Like, And I think everyone like finding what trajectory is right to you is a hard thing. And I think we undervalue that kind of, as a, as a community, as a society, broader than data science, we kind of undervalue this, hey, not everyone has to try and want to be a vice president someday. Absolutely. And in all honesty, I think we could try to give people advice on which directions to go, but you kind of got to try it for yourself and follow your intuition, right? And talk with people about what you want. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like a metaphor for what I was talking about with data science, which is you can't just take historic data and use that to accurately predict what's going to happen next. Sometimes you got to run the A-B experiment. Sometimes you got to try being in a more leadership position, whether that's mentoring on your team, getting a position as manager, whatever, like you, like I have certainly learned in my career that I don't learn until I try stuff on my own. So if data science were to go the direction you'd like, what would it look like in five years? I feel like given, especially given what we saw in this conversation, I feel like it would look largely similar to what we are doing now, except I think we would have less of the kind of bullshit work. Right? Like we just get more nuance in terms of like, where is data science useful? Where is it not useful? How can we tell, hey, this work we're doing now isn't really beneficial, so we're going to pivot? Or, hey, these PowerPoints we're making are largely used just as political infighting. We should avoid doing this. Like, I think we're just going to get more, I hope we get over the next five years more mature of this and like better at knowing, hey, should we have data scientists in this place at all? Or like, hey, this is not a place for data science. You know, like just, yeah, nuancey stuff as opposed to, you know, like 10 billion parameter models. How do we get there? Gosh, I don't know, Hugo. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I kind of just think it's going to be a matter of luck of we as a field all collectively mature and the stakeholders mature and everyone kind of learns more. Or like the worst case scenario, like we just trick ourselves into thinking that no, none of these are real problems. The only problem is our models aren't big enough and auto retraining and reinforcement learning. Like, yeah, it's just a, it's a collective community, collective action community sort of like, I don't know, does it happen or not? Like, how are we going to solve global warming? I don't know if we all could band together and, you know, change our society, we'll do it. But how, I don't know, how do you get how do you get a lot of people to change? I don't know. One thing we hinted at earlier is have more realistic conversations. I think in the labor market, data scientists, like it is a hot market at the moment. So I, I think being more honest with potential employers and current employers around what is actually possible and, and, and what isn't is super important. Yeah, okay, so you're right. I agree with that. And I would say me personally, what I'm trying to do is give more conference talks, trying to add more conference talks to the world where I'm talking about ways in which I have failed, ways in which data scientists is a risky business and we need to be careful, ways I've dealt with sexism, whatever, like talks about vulnerable things that are nuanced and complicated more than, hey, look at this cool model I built in my company that's even bigger and better than what we were doing before. And I think the more, the more of that kind of talk that becomes common, I do think that will help. So I will say that. I, I feel like we part. should have like a fail conf or something like that. Gosh. A that feels like conference. that must exist. That must. That feels Not like in the data, is it a data space. I don't know. Uh, Caitlin Houdin did one, I think. Yeah, okay. Hold well, on, I'm Googling it. Do it. And it's good podcast material. And we'll include that in the show notes as well. Almost positive she ran a conference or at least like a one day talk event. No, it was great. great. I, did not, I did not attend because I had parenting stuff. Yeah. But. but yeah, more stories of fails as well. Maybe someone should start a fail blog or something something like that as well. So we can all, I mean, it's a, it's a similar question in scientific research, right? That the incentive is to publish positive results, not, not negative results. And how do, you, how do you learn when you do that? I wonder if yeah. the other question is I, yeah. we've taken, 
We've seen the the real big proof of principles happen in tech and in in fan companies, and which I think we do live in the shadow of a, a lot of these techniques and, and and results at this point, and figuring out what data science at a smaller scale looks like. All of that stuff is fantastic for their purposes and maybe for some of ours, but seeing what actually solves the problems for other types of businesses at what you'd call reasonable scale or something like that. Yeah, I agree. And I think I think it is a very common thing for people to be like, well, how can we be like Facebook? How can we be like Google? How can we make our company more blah, blah, blah? But like, those are really different use cases. And like, I kind of like, that's why I like working in Saturn Cloud because our product is for smaller teams, right? Like, I think there's something... The more like there's a lot of up like there there's probably a hundred companies that are five data scientists doing stuff for every one big tech company, you know, and like yep. they're really different problem spaces. And I think it's really like there's so much positive good work we can do by improving methods, tooling, whatever for the kind of more realistic use cases as opposed to trying to make everyone uh, face fang company. Yeah, for example, I think Kubernetes is fantastic for a lot of a, a lot of things, but I. It, it may be overused because of the clout that that Google has as well. Doesn't that make you? I, okay, we're just on like a light tangent, but this makes me mad as a data scientist, where like I'm reading a blog post or something, or I'm reading about like some tech some data scientist company is doing, and they're like, first, first we built the model, then we made the model retrain itself every day, and then we added the reinforcement learning, and then we put in the ML ops and blah blah blah, and you're like. Man, like, like, sir, this is a Wendy's. Like, 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 your model is like predicting churn once a month. Amazing. Like, you don't need all of that. And it's like, it really makes me mad when people over-engineer this stuff to make it like cool and whatever. And it's like, gosh, your company would be way better if you just chilled out. And I think that's part of this in five years. We'll have more nuance of like, when do you actually need the model to retrain itself, and when is it fine to once every three months put it in, or mm. you know, like, like just. Figuring that stuff out all takes time. Absolutely. I love that you said, sir, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> I'm going to say that to people who don't even work at Wendy's when this problem comes up, actually. Yeah. When they're like, I'm deploying yeah. with blah, 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 blah. I'll be like, sir, this is a Wendy's. And, and like, I don't think this is a new today of science field. Like, people joke about like, you know, like, oh, it's time to write your own, like, time to self-host a blog. First, you need the Kubernetes to like host the blog and the blah, blah, blah. Like, right, like software engineering, lots of fields have this problem, but oh, it, yeah. we have it too in data science. Also, to be clear, like, a lot of the concerns and, and criticisms we're discussing today aren't particular to data science per se. We're discussing them in a data science context, but we're figuring out what an entirely new discipline and technology stack looks like, right, as an industry. So and I do wonder how much yeah. we can learn from, from previous iterations of this, such as software engineering, right? Yeah, and exactly. And learning that, like, hey, a light touch can be just as valuable as a heavy hammer of every ML tool we got. Exactly. Jacqueline, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. As did I. I'm interested if you have a final call to action for our listeners, something you'd encourage encourage people to do. I will say, see, when you word it like that, it should be like, go bring peace to the world, right? Like, it's like, what should you do? Ah, oh, there's a lot of things you do. Well, I would say for a, if you're interested in me and what I do and stuff like that, I would say, check me out on Twitter. That's twitter.com slash skytetra, S-K-Y-E-T-E-T-R-A, or just mm-hmm. Twitter search for Jacqueline Knowles, you'll more likely get me. Saturn Cloud, the product I'm working on is really cool. SaturnCloud.io, worth checking out if you're looking at cloud hosting data science stuff. And the book that you mentioned that me and Emily Robinson wrote, Build a Career Data Science, you can read up on that at bestbook.cool. That is bestbook.cool. And if you use the offer code buildbook40%, you get 40% off that book, which I've said every uh, podcast episode with me and Emily, and it's like ingrained in my brain now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's awesome. And I, I didn't even know dot .cool, you could have dot .cools, so congratulations on that URL as well. Uh, yeah, the, I, the dividends that 
that URL is paying is incredible. Like you people remember it. <laughs> Jacqueline, thanks once again. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you in the show, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter, at Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. See you in the next episode.